chapter 13. Arguably the most confronting chapter of the Bible, where there is a sexual assault in a family. So I just want you to be well armed and prepared for that. Five to eight are going to head out. Who we got left children-wise? All right. 2 Samuel, chapter 13, just to uh, orientate you a little bit, perhaps, um, three or four chapters ago, David is king and things are going swimmingly. He's conquered all his enemies, the, uh, the kingdom is just, it's this golden moment uh, for God's people and God's nation, Israel, under God's king, King David. God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. And things are going so well that it's just doubly tragic when David decides to commit adultery and David decides to commit murder and has uh, the husband of Bathsheba murdered and he takes Bathsheba to be with him in an adulterous affair and then forces her to become his wife. In chapter 12, he's rebuked by Nathan and he realises what he's done and he realises the depths of his sin and he cries out in sorrow and repentance to God and God in his kindness is merciful to David but the, but the consequences of David's sin remain and his family is a shambles because of his sin and that's what we see unfold in these next few chapters uh, of 2 Samuel, kind of chapters 13 to 16 particularly, we start to see um, this devastation through his family. Uh, two sons in particular in focus in these chapters, Amnon and Absalom, and also his daughter Tamar. So 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Just to be clear, also his sister. Interestingly, that it's worded that way. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimi, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, 
made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away will be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never spoke to Amnon again. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given, haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, said, 
My Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My Lord the King should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch, the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened, just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. The king, too, and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Emahud, the king of Geshur. The king David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. This is God's word. Well, friends, there's a lot going on in this passage, uh, so we ought to pray and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we do pray that even in a passage like this, that you would speak to us about your good purposes and help us to understand what you're saying to us. Uh, Please help us to uh, be able to process what we uh, see uh, and understand uh, it in your purposes and time. Amen. Well, if you had to uh, share something about your parents, which you see in yourself, uh, which you're either thankful for or you wish you could change, what would you say? What would you say if I, if I did, I'm not going to, but if I, if I did say turn to the person next to you and share something that you see in yourself from your parents, um, would it be something you're thankful for? Uh, would it be something you wish you could change? <clears throat> Inevitably, our parents and our family of origin, what our life was like growing up, well, it, it has some bearing on who we are and what we're like, right? For better or for worse. When Annie and I were preparing for marriage, we knew that some cultural differences in our families of origin uh, would have some bearing in the way that we relate to each other, and especially uh, probably in what conflict looks like in um, our relationship and in our marriage. Uh, But I don't think we really uh, got it. I don't think we really experienced it, um, uh, how much it affects us until we had our son Ezra. Uh, It's not his fault. Uh, but certainly children um, do uh, put the pressure on, don't they? Um, and certainly we didn't, we, didn't really, we didn't really get it until we were actually married, at least. Um, and I can see as well how both of us having parents who've separated uh, from each other um, affects our views of marriage and relationships and faithfulness, uh, but for us, as we desperately don't want to follow down the same road, But the way that we end up is not inevitable, is it? Uh, Neither Annie nor I grew up in Christian homes. Yet, by God's kindness and grace, he's saved both of us and he's changed us so that we don't just reflect the values and lives of our parents. So as we head back into 2 Samuel uh, at church together in this later part of the year, we're going to see the undoing of David's kingdom and his family 
we'll see the tragedy of the sins of the father David, uh, and uh, we'll see that they set the pattern for the behaviour and the relationships in the royal family of Israel. See, today I've called it like father, like son. And what we'll see is that the sins of the father are just like the sins of the son. And one of the major themes as well uh, in the stories of David and his family that we'll see in 2 Samuel uh, is precisely the unavoidable link between uh, public and private life within the ruling family. See, what occurs in David and his family sets the trajectory for the people of God. This is meant to be the high point in Israel's history, as Gab mentioned. But already, already, sin is making its ugly mark and beginning to undo some of God's blessings upon his people. But we'll also see as we go through our series in the later part of 2 Samuel that these chapters are not completely devoid of hope. God promises to keep his word to David to establish his kingdom and for someone to be on the throne from his line. And at the end of our last series, in chapter 12, Solomon, David's son, was already introduced in chapter 12. Uh, And so it's clear whatever else happens in these chapters, a central element is the succession to the throne and the continuation of David's kingship, even if we'll see that it's already marred by human failing. So today, we first need to turn to the sins of the father. And in order to understand our passage better, you'll see there's an outline on the back of your handout if you want to follow that. To understand our passage better, we're going to look back at, the, at chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. So feel free to flick back in your Bible to chapter 11 um, or just have a look on the screen. I've got a bit of an outline as we go through. We need to understand the sins of the father, King David. Um, and so... Firstly, we'll, all, we'll have a look um, at chapter 11, verse 1. Here we see that something is already off. See, David stays in Jerusalem at the time when kings usually go off to war. We're going to see later as well that David is asleep at the wheel, both in his role as a king and in his role as a father. He's asleep on the battlefield and asleep at home. And so we see that since David isn't busy doing his job, instead he ends up being bored and longs for pleasure and satisfaction. And so one evening, David gets up from his bed and he walks around aimlessly on the roof of his palace. He spots a woman, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing, and he decides that he'll take her and sleep with her and send her back home. David then covers up his sin by getting his commander, Joab, to orchestrate the killing of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by sending him on a suicide mission on the battlefield. Now, David doesn't even do the dirty deed himself, but he is fully responsible for this. We then see that in chapter 12, David indicts himself before the prophet Nathan. Nathan comes and he tells David a parable and asked David what should happen. And at the end of that parable, David says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb, that's part of the parable, 
four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That's uh, chapter 12, verse 6. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now this then is the consequence. Uh, David will pay four times over uh, and even more for his sin. And Nathan prophesies, chapter 12, verse 10, he says, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me, that's God, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity or evil upon you. And so the following chapters then, chapter 13 onwards, are the fulfillment of this interaction between David and Nathan. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And while David doesn't die for his sin, the child that Bathsheba does die, that Bathsheba bore him, does die in chapter 12. And so in our chapter, chapter 13, we now have seen the sins of the father and we see the sins of the sons. The tragedy continues as the sins of the father David lead now into our chapter 13 to 20, the sins of the son. Our chapters show the evil from David's house that, David annou- that Nathan announced to David. And it centers around the rebellion of his son, Absalom. Now, friends, as we look at chapter 13 today, out of all the sad stories in the historical books in the Bible, this is one of the saddest. Of all the stories in the Bible about outrageous violence against women, this is one of the most outrageous. But this account demonstrates at least two truths. First, that God's prophetic word is true. And second, that the sins of one generation imprint on the next generation. Each sin not only fosters more sin, but it also fashions it by providing precedents for others to follow. So we'll first look at the son Amnon. The chapter continues the tragic sin, uh, chain of sin begun in chapter 11, as now David's firstborn son and his heir, Amnon, commits an incestuous rape. Now the parallels between the king's sin and that of his son Amnon are numerous. Both committed immoral acts outside of marriage with what are described as beautiful women in the privacy of their own residences. Both women experienced great grief because of the men's actions. And ultimately, both transgressions brought about death for sons of David. And there are echoes here in chapter 13 as well of earlier accounts in the Bible of sexual abuse. See, this story actually shares language with Shechem's rape of Dina in Genesis 34, with Potiphar's wife's attempts to force herself on Joseph in Genesis 39, and a tragic story about a Levite's violated concubine in Judges 19. But this tragic account now places a thing that's described as something that should not happen in Israel in the very family 
that ought to be preventing it happening. Now, if you have a look at the first verse of our chapter, the first verse mentions the word love. But nothing here goes as might be expected in a love story. See, Tamar is caught between powerful men. We have the cousin and friend Jonadab who plots to lure her to Amnon's side. We have a father who acts as her procurer, the brother who rapes her, and the other brother who appears to silence her. Tamar is a young woman who visits a friend, a relative, with a plate full of food because he's not feeling well. And then she gets violated for her efforts and thrown off the premises because her rapist loads her as much as he first lusted for her. It's an account of both rape and incest. See, the brother-sister relationship between Tamar and Amnon is referred to uh, a dozen times, in, uh, sometimes in different ways. And the deceit involved makes it pretty clear that both young men knew that what they were plotting was wrong. This was no spur-of-the-moment offence. This was deliberate, well-planned assault on a defenceless woman. There was no consideration at all in their minds as to what the effect of their plan might have on Tamar. That was completely irrelevant to them. Amnon was following in his father's footsteps. He lusted, so he took. And the repercussions of David's sin go on and on. Just like in many Middle Eastern cultures today, it's likely it would have been unthinkable for Tamar to be allowed to visit Amnon or vice versa in their personal quarters. But Jonadab, the cousin, rightly predicted that David could be persuaded to make an exception. Verse 6, Amnon lies about being sick and he requests that his sister make some kind of dumpling soup, is probably a better translation than bread, uh, for his illness. Um, That kind of makes sense. And in verse 7, David is implicated in the plot and he sends his daughter in to her abuser. Now, eventually, by verse 11, they're alone in the room together and Amnon grabs hold of Tamar and demands that she sleep with him. Tamar resisted, both verbally and physically. Her first word in response to her half-brother's sinful request was no, verse 12. In fact, Tamar said no if at least three, if not four times, depending on how you read it. There is no doubt at all that she was unwilling. This offence was against her as well as being against the law. See, just like his father David, Amnon is abusing his power to satisfy his lusts. Now, intercourse between a brother and sister and even a half-brother and half-sister was explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 18.19. And so this rape is described as a wicked thing which should not be done in Israel in verse 12. Now, Tamar's use of these phrases also, as I mentioned before, allude to the account of Shechem's rape of Dina in Genesis 34, 7. And so this forced Amnon to put his mind 
at least momentarily, back into God's law and to consider the end result of Shechem's and therefore his own actions, which in both cases is death. But Amnon does not respect Tamar's repeated no, and he does not heed Tamar's wise warnings about God's law. Like father, like son, Amnon takes what he wants with no regard for his victim or for God's law. Now, after the rape, in verse 15, suddenly Amnon's great love of Tamar turns to an intense hatred more than he ever loved her. Clearly, the love that is felt at the beginning was not love at all. It was pure lust. See, Amnon wanted the virgin Tamar, not the defiled woman that he had now made her. And cruelly, he commands her to get up and get out. This hatred and contempt is surely a supreme example of a blame-the-victim mentality. He calls her this woman, where before she had been my sister. It actually reminds us of David back in chapter 11. So even after we know Bathsheba's name and after David has slept with her and she's sent back home, you'll see that she's still referred to as the woman. Just as his father had taken advantage of a woman and then had used his power to command someone else to implement his cruelty, so now Amnon calls his personal servant in, verses 17 and 18, and commands Tamar's rejection from his quarters like a prostitute. Tamar's thrown out, and in verse 19, publicly reveals her grief and defilement. Putting ashes on the head, tearing of one's clothes, covering the head with a hand or a garment, they're all classic expressions of grief or humiliation. Now, of course, before long, David then hears. And in verse 21, he's angry. But he appears to do nothing for either Tamar or to Amnon. Neither as a king nor as a parent did he take any action to punish Amnon or to alleviate Tamar's situation. David became furious, but that's it. This is the first time we've seen David in relationship with his children. And the picture comes into focus of a father who is unwilling to interfere in his son's pleasures. Just as in chapter 11, David was asleep as a king on the battlefield. And now he's asleep as a king and a father at home. But of course, the elephant in the room here as well is David's own taking of a woman that was not his to take. Like David's abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, this offence occurred in the royal family, the very family which was tasked with upholding the law of God in Israel. How could David bring the rule of law against his son when there were so many similarities to his own sin. But in verse 20, it seems like there's someone who finally turns up at just the right moment, someone who immediately discerns what has gone wrong. Tamar's brother Absalom, 
mentioned first back in verse 1. He asks, has your brother Amnon been with you? But the fact that he has this information, well, it might show that Amnon's desire had been known in the palace, but that no one had done anything to protect Tamar from her faith. If this is the case, David's involvement is all the more devastating. It appears as though there is a closeness between Absalom and Tamar. In verse 20, Absalom acts with compassion and he takes Tamar into his house to live with him. Later, he'll name his daughter after Tamar. And in verse 22, we see that he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. But Absalom's words to her, be quiet now, amount to urging her not to make the matter public at present. Do not take this thing to heart, he says, verse 20. Perhaps this is because he'll deal with it on her behalf. Or perhaps in his own selfishness, Absalom recognises that Amnon is before him in the line of succession to the throne and that this could be an excuse to remove Amnon so that Absalom is the heir. See, the narrator doesn't tell us, but the following chapters we'll see in following weeks suggest that it could have been a bit of both. But Tamar's weeping is the last that we hear from her. For Absalom sadly does what those in the circle of a raped woman often do, whether they be friend or family. He hushes her. Sadly, friends, sexual violence from a friend or an acquaintance or a lover is as common today as it was in the past. And according to the ABS, 87% of women who were sexually assaulted knew their perpetrator, 87%. One person who experienced it describes the aftermath like this. For me, to be raped was to be powerless, helpless, and to be made to feel utterly alone. Well-intentioned friends weren't equipped to be supportive for as long as I needed them. People didn't know what to say, so they said nothing at all. They avoided me, perhaps for fear of saying the wrong thing. Their silence echoed in my mind. I felt that I didn't fit into the world that I knew anymore. I could never be the person that I was before, the person who had never been raped, the person who had held an unknown innocence and lightness. My rapists made themselves powerful, and I thought that they stole my name, my very self, and my ability to be whole. Friends, if you need any support in this area, if you've suffered or know someone who has, please be assured that if you need to chat to any of our staff, we will listen and believe you and not hush you. And if you've suffered abuse in this way, please know that you are not to blame and that this behaviour is not okay. While we see an account of this here in the Bible, this does not mean that God approves or condones this abuse. 
See, even though Tamar's feelings are ignored by Amnon and the other men in the account, they are noted by God. Perhaps the one encouraging thing in this passage here for women in particular is the element of light in the dark tunnel of this account as we see the deep insight given by the narrator into helping us to hear Tamar. One commentator, Mary J. Evans, she puts it like this. Amnon, the surrounding society, and even David might have thought her feelings irrelevant, but the writer, and by implication God himself, most certainly did not. We see Tamar as a person in her own right. We note her generous nature as she cooks for her supposedly sick brother. We feel her incredulity turn, sorry, yet we feel her incredulity turn to dismay as she realises what his intentions are. We sense his dismay turn to hopeless desperation as it becomes clear that Amnon has no intention of listening to reason. We watch her despair turn to inconsolable misery and self-loathing as she's thrown out and indeed becomes a desolate woman, permanently isolated in her brother Absalom's house. We notice the pride with which she wore her richly ornamented robe as she approached the house. It proclaimed her as one of the most eligible women in the country. And we weep with her as she rips her clothes and covers herself with ashes, her great shame apparent to all. There is no lessening of the misery, but then there is nevertheless some comfort in realising that this woman was known. This woman did count. God sees. So we turn now to the second son, Absalom. And the first half of our chapter began with love and finished with hatred. We don't have to wait long to see that that hatred expresses itself. Because in verse 23, the narrator immediately plunges us two years into the future. Absalom finally takes matters into his own hands, not because he was impatient with the slow-turning wheels of his father's justice, but rather with the fact that the wheels of his father's justice weren't turning at all. Ironically, though, he ends up following right in his father's footsteps. From here onwards, Absalom is the main person to notice in the following chapters of 2 Samuel. And notice that even at the beginning of the chapter, Tamar was introduced as Absalom's sister, not David's daughter. Verse 23, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Now, sheep shearing was a time of feasting. Um, and it's not clear whether Absalom's orchestrated this whole episode to take revenge on Amnon or whether He's just been biding his time and sees, oh, an opportunity has come up. But there are, however, remarkable similarities between Absalom's plan for revenge and Amnon's original plan, whether or not deliberately on Absalom's part, but certainly noted in the scriptures. See, deceit is used to put the victim into a vulnerable position. David, again, is involved, this time ensuring that Amnon is led into the trap. And also, like with David's sins, those serving Absalom are used to orchestrate 
the crime for him. Absalom plans, verse 28, that Amnon get drunk and he orders his men to strike him. Now, Absalom's servants apparently balked at the idea of the order to commit murder, and fair enough. And Absalom encouraged them not to be afraid, just like his father David had encouraged his servant Joab with the same words when he had Uriah killed. Just like David before him, Absalom now gives the order for murder to happen. And so the words of the prophet Nathan are fulfilled. The sword will never depart from your house. Like father, like son, David's sins of sexual abuse and murder have characterised the lives and deaths of both his sons. The initial report King David receives of the tragic incident, while it's woefully inaccurate, David's told in verse 30 that all of the king's sons had died at the hands of Absalom and that not one of them is left. But the king's reaction in verse 31 to this horrifying report is to tear his clothes in that classic expression of grief and distress. It parallels that of his own daughter, Tamar. But we heard nothing of those actions by David after that incident. And now as David grieves, surely those words of Nathan in 12.10 about the sword of judgment, surely they must have come flooding back to David. Now this section resounds with the word dead, just as it did in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 18 and 19. That's when the child of David and Bathsheba died for David's sins. You'll see it on the screen, I've highlighted it. Died, dead, dead. Dead, dead, dead. Six times in two verses. And now again in our passage, death is the word which saturates the end of this chapter. Counting Uriah, three deaths have now been the consequence of adultery and rape. If you don't count Uriah, David's own fourfold judgment against himself has now taken two of his sons and we see later that another two will be taken at a later time have a look in your bibles the entire episode ends with the word death and now the divine punishment for the sins of the father have played out in the father's own likeness at the murderous orders of his son This whole account, friends, reveals the tragedy that the sins of David have set the pattern for the behaviour and relationships in his family and for the people of God, like father, like son. David has failed in his role as a king and a father, and the implications are disastrous. A daughter violated, another son dead, and a third in exile. And over the next few chapters, we'll continue to see an unravelling of David's kingship and family. But there's a few final implications that I'd like to draw out for us, and I think it's really important for us to do this. The first one is to see that divine justice is satisfied, even though human justice failed. Nathan's prophecies against David are being fulfilled. 
the sword has not departed from David's house, and out of his own household, God has brought disaster upon him. David has failed to bring either of his sons to justice, but that failure of human justice, even by God's appointed king, does not impede divine justice. But of course, the second thing to see is that divine discipline can be extremely painful when God allows the children to repeat the sins of the parents. David's crimes of sexual sin and murder are repeated in Amnon's and Absalom's sins. God has judged David by allowing his sin to be punished in the following generations. David's sins planted the seeds for what subsequently happens in his family. Like father, like son, David's lust and abuse of power over Bathsheba is repeated in Amnon's violation of Tamar, and his deceit and murderous intent is repeated in Absalom. And so God uses the sins of David's sons to discipline David. This is particularly painful for David as he watches the destruction of his family for his, and for his children as they suffer, especially for Tamar whose life has been ruined by her father's and her brother's sins. See, human sin brings with it collateral damage, doesn't it? Innocent people suffer because of the evil actions as others. Now, it's important to see that God has used this as discipline, but at every step, Amnon and Absalom are acting according to their own sin, and they are fully responsible for their own actions. Now, this kind of discipline can be really painful for us when we see our children repeating our sins, and we feel the shame and distress as we see our children walk in exactly the same failures as we have. And I tell you what, I fear this for my son Ezra and for our coming twins. I pray desperately that they would not repeat the same failures as I have. So this should teach us all the more to grieve our sin and the way that it affects not only us, but those around us and those who come after us. And it should teach us to repent of our sin and to live a new and different life. The third implication I want to draw out is really important, friends. We have been adopted by a new father in heaven. Now, in this particularly distressing account, it's really easy to feel like things are hopeless, but they are not. There is a son in David's line who is just like his father, And it is the best thing we could ever hope for. See, in John 5.19, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus perfectly images his heavenly Father, the holy, righteous, and perfect God. 
See, in Christ, friends, like father, like son, takes on a whole new image. And if we are in Christ, we don't just have earthly fathers or mothers that we take after. We have a new father in heaven. 1 John 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are children of God, our Father in heaven. And so now we can take after him instead. We are not bound by sin or bound by the sins of our fathers, but we become more and more like our brother Christ and like our Father in heaven as his Holy Spirit works in us. We're not perfected, but we trust Jesus, longing for that day when we will be conformed to his image. And so our final implication then is walk in a way that you want to impart to others. Whether you're a father or mother with children, or whether you're a spiritual father or mother to people who look up to you, whom you disciple, or who look at you or follow you, Live in a way that models Christ-likeness to those who look up to you. It's not all on you, because we have a new Father in heaven. But our Father uses us to model what following him looks like. Friends, the effects of sin are real, long-lasting, and reach beyond ourselves but so do the effects of godliness. So walk in the way of our heavenly Father, in the footsteps of Jesus, so that this is what we pass on to others. Please pray with my friends. Heavenly Father, this is a confronting topic, and we pray that if anybody here has experienced this kind of destructive abuse or suffering, we pray for your healing. We ask that you would work in us and change us so that we might not repeat the sins of those gone before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a new Father in heaven and that the sins of the fathers no longer inevitably imprint upon the sons or the daughters. But Father, we have a new Father, you, and a new brother, Jesus. Help us to walk in your way. Help us to imitate Christ so that we would walk in your footsteps. And help us to model godliness to others, that they might walk after us, like Father, like Son, but like Christ and like you. Amen.